Robert Kennedy, in a speech, quoted a Chinese proverb, which was said to be a curse. May you live in interesting times. And he said, it's a time of danger, this interesting time. It's a time of danger and uncertainty, but also most creative time. And as I said when I was about to present a reading by Nyogen Senzaki before we began our Mandala Day service this morning. It's much easier to become complacent and to think that the danger lies elsewhere, the danger is others. So I think nowadays at least the truth is out. We can say that with a certain sense of appreciation for the creativity that it presents us with. All times are interesting in their own way, but when we forget what's continuously lurking beneath what appears to be a rather harmonious surface, when we forget then, as George Santayana is said to have commented, those who do not learn from history, those who cannot remember the past, are doomed to repeat it. And as I said in my quoting Senzaki, his letter home from 1908, three years after he had come to this country. Prejudice against the Japanese was very powerful. And the forces of hatred have always been lurking, about to spring forth 
given the right circumstances. We all know that this great land of ours was stolen from the indigenous people who were decimated by the westward expansion. We all know that these great institutions of ours in the East were built by slaves who were brought over from Africa. We know that the railroads were built by Chinese laborers who were paid near slave wages. And many of us have been caught or have had families caught in the net of danger and uncertainty. Someone who is living here who may not know what next year will bring as an immigrant from Iran. Someone who is practicing here who has endured the prejudice of those who don't want any deviation from accepted gender and sexuality. We all know how difficult it has been to be a person of color in this country, always affected and afflicted by the history. And as myself, I know very well the continuing force of anti-Semitism. Before I was born, my father, whose name was Leonard Cohen, changed his last name to protect me before he went over to fight against Hitler's army. So my last name became Corlin. And now to look around my country and see swastikas, not those of Hindu and Buddhist religious icons, but the emblem of Nazi hatred. and to hear the rants of white supremacists who feel empowered. This is what we feared with the last election results.
And the question becomes, what do we do? Do we wait for things to get better? After all, it's not about the president. It's about the people who elected him, who have finally, they feel, an opportunity to put forth a platform quite openly. What is that platform? based on the other pointing at the other which is of course what led to the Holocaust so we Jews say never again but here we are If we can say, oh, it's just a temporary thing, everything will be fine, what does that do? It seems like you're complacent when we do that. What happens when we're complacent? It gets worse. Read history, right? Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So, definitely it is not a time for complacency. It is a time for creativity. It is a time to know what it is that we're doing when we say we are Zen Buddhist students practicing together. What is it that we are practicing? We cannot ever be complacent, not even for a moment. That's absolutely true. We cannot look away, even for a moment, from the suffering that is around us and within us. And although it may be tempting to take a stance that meets violence with violence and hatred with hatred, that d will not do. We know what the Dhammapada teaches us, right? If we meet hatred with love, and yet see without shrinking that some response is absolutely necessary 
that we cannot simply say everything will be fine in 5,000 years or after this planet is free of human kind, which is very likely to happen. Those who have studied climate change assiduously have told us this human race is not likely to be around after another 50 years or so if we continue doing what we've been doing and denying what we've been denying. So we can say, well, let's just wait it out. Hatred continues. People suffer and then we're gone. That's certainly one way to look at it, isn't it? Resignation. Apathy. Hopelessness. But this is not what a person of the way does. And soon we will be burying the ashes of Rita Gabachi, Joraku's mother, who lived as a person who could never shut up. When she saw injustice, she spoke out. When she saw others in danger. She did her utmost to help, right? She was a great example, not only for her family, but for all of us. I first met her when she came to participate in a class. I was giving deep presence. She couldn't hear much. She was very present. Hmm? So uh, there have been a number of very good things written recently in ways of responding to what's going on. One was just uh, written by somebody from Garrison uh, Institute named Stacy Mitchell. She was at that Charlottesville demonstration and counter demonstration. And she writes, My ego tries to convince me that I am separate. Isn't that what we all experience? The moment the ego arises, we think, okay, I have to look out for number one. That's me, myself, and mine. My ego tries to convince me that I am separate, that my mind is independent from my surroundings, and that my will is separate from any influences throughout my life. That's pretty much the nature of complacency right there. 
keeping ourselves quote-unquote safe until we discover that it's not at all the case because we are all together in this. She says, habits have formed my life. How I react and interact with my society is guided by my personal history. Why was I born in the United States of America and not Sudan? You might say, and not Iran, not Israel, not Venezuela. How has that informed my existence? Do I have a responsibility not only to see all of humanity as equal, but to act as though I have full conviction of my words? If I don't stand up for what is right, why would I think anyone else should? This is a really important question for us, isn't it? Sometimes there is this temptation to think, well, someone else will go and walk and march and speak and write and stand for justice. And she says, I can't sit on the sidelines thinking someone else can take the cause for what I believe in. That simply reinforces the idea that I am separate. I am not separate from Heather Heyer, who is standing up to the bigotry and hatred of those gathered for Unite the Right. I am also not separate from the tragic deaths of the two police officers that were assigned to protect the community of Charlottesville and put their lives at risk daily. And she concludes that uh, section of what she wrote. Although we are shattered and devastated by the loss of Heather Heyer, her commitment to stand up and ultimately die for what is good and humane in the name of love has made us stronger in our collective commitment to move forward in denouncing hatred. So these interesting times. Of course, every time is an interesting time. And if you look at the span of your own lifetime, you can see moments when you are called upon to speak out, to stand up, to sit down. Umon Zenji said, I do not ask you about the, 15, the first 15 days of the month, but what about the last 15 days of the month? In other words, the lunar calendar on the 15th, full moon of enlightenment. 
I do not ask you about all your delusions, but what about when you have come to see this, this mind? And he answered, as he often did for his students, what did he say? Every day is a good day. When we are awake to this, when we don't try to close our eyes and hope for the best, when we know it's important to be honest, truthful, aware, speak up, sit with this deep intention, our bodhisattva vow to save all beings. It's not something general. It's specific, right here, right now, this time. Then, coming from the depth of our understanding, we can say, every day is a good day. Every day, as it is, what we like, what we deplore, every day. And what did Mumon Zanji say in his verse? The spring flowers, the summer breeze, the autumn moon, winter snowflakes. If useless things don't clutter your mind, every season is the best season. So we're practicing so that we are not cluttered, so that we can see and respond from that clarity of mind that is essential for any activity. Otherwise, all we do is act from hatred, act from reactivity to what we have seen around us, that we have perceived, perhaps rightly, as dangerous. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said there are two kinds of fear, afflictive fear and wisdom fear. Afflictive fear is one we all know very well. It's the fear that is based on this idea of a separate self, this idea of others, and running from any danger rather than seeking a creative way of responding. We feel this fear all the time. 
It's very natural. The human tendency to see oneself as more important, one's separated self-identity as more important than anyone else. Why do we practice? To know for ourselves this interconnectivity that we cannot ever consider the path forward from this separate individuality point of view. Wisdom fear, on the other hand, is knowing when something will be harmful, not only to oneself, but to all those one is moved to work for, to understand what it is, truly non-violent, responsive act, what it is. Because to meet hatred with hatred is indeed the stupidest thing we can do. There is no wisdom in that. So to have that wisdom fear means we come from the clarity of our practice. We see what can be helpful and what will perpetuate the violence around us. There's an article in today's New York Times review section about fascism and the violence in Charlottesville. Experts in nonviolent protests say it could serve as a model for Americans alarmed by the white supremacist movement who are looking for an effective way to respond and who might be tempted to meet violence with violence. They appreciate the sentiment of the Antifa demonstrators, members of an anti-racist group with militant and anarchist roots who are willing to fight people they consider fascists. They appreciate these people, but, but, Quote, I would want to punch a Nazi in the nose too, Maria Stephan of the United States Institute of Peace told me. But there's a difference between a therapeutic and strategic <laughs> response. So this strategy is so important, isn't it? When we live in interesting times, Strategy. How do we approach from our Buddhist practice what may seem to be absolutely impossible to work with? The problem, she said, is that violence is bad strategy. Violence directed at white nationalists fuels their narrative of victimhood. Many people excuse people from for voting for Trump, saying, well, they felt like victims. You've heard that line, right? 
the poor white males. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Fuels their narrative of victimhood, of a hounded, soon-to-be minority who can't exercise their rights to free speech without getting pummeled. This kind of violence probably helps them recruit. And more broadly, if violence against minorities is what you find repugnant in neo-Nazi rhetoric, then you are using the very force you're trying to overcome, said Michael Nagler, the founder of the Peace and Conflict Studies program at the University of California, Berkeley. So from a strategic point of view, it has been found nonviolent resistance is more than twice as effective as violent resistance in achieving change. But it doesn't feel that way when you're being beaten, does it? See, uh, this all so depends. This is a boiling cauldron mm. of points of view mm. and context. Mm. What Mahatma Gandhi did is one thing. What Eisenhower did was something else. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible to say. Right. If you're standing and you can stand up nonviolently, I don't think the French had a chance or the English had a chance. Mm. It's such a... What did Churchill say about fear? Do you remember? We have nothing to fear. Fear itself while they fought. While they fought. And they killed Germans. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's seems like this has been going on like for 5,000 years. More than that. When Buddha was born, there was a caste system. Mm -hmm. His response was not to tear down the caste system. His response was to find another way. It just seems that there's so much there that you're speaking of. There's so many possibilities, so many permutations. There are so many possibilities and permutations. And of course, the Buddha actually acted against the caste system. He didn't tear it down. Right, but his own strategy made a shift. And that's such a wonderful example. How can each of us make this subtle shift in our own lives among all the possibilities? We cannot simply speak in the abstract. We're living here. This is a very difficult matter, and Cal, you bring it up in a way that I think is extremely important. I think that also the way Cal is bringing this up is part of what, you know, I sit with because there are so many permutations and the right response just isn't always evident. That's what, right. What, what is Rinzai saying when he says that only a blockhead would try and change the world? It's so hard to know. And he also said, when I get there, I'll know what to do. And that has to be, that has to be our understanding. That's what we sit with. We can't map out the strategy before the event. We have to have this depth of practice so that when we get there, Master Rinzai is acting with us. We act. If we don't act, it's because we know what not to do. This subtle but absolutely imperative way of conducting our lives 
is why we're here, what our vow is. It's not a matter of abstraction. It's a matter of what is facing us right here, right now. On the eve of the 21st day of, what is this month? August. August 2017. What will be asked of us? And how will we respond? When we get there, we better know what to do because we're already there. <laughs>